Hello, listeners. I'm Sam with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This week on Below the Radar, host Amjo Hall is joined by Norman Armour, a Vancouver-based curator, consultant, producer, director, actor, and non-profit art specialist with over 35 years of experience. Together, they talk about Norman's time co-founding the Push International Performing Arts Festival, his storied career in the Vancouver art scene, as well as his health. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again uh, this week. We have a special guest with us, the living legend, Norman Armour. Welcome, Norman. Oh, thank you for uh, having me on the show. If, yeah. if you call it a show, I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. Other people can call it a show. I don't know. Uh, uh, Norman, maybe we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Uh, yes. Um, my name is Norman Armour. I'm an independent curator, consultant, producer, interdisciplinary artist. Um, I'm based out of Vancouver. been based out of here since, I guess, around 1980 or so, perhaps the late 70s, when I went up to work in Whistler. And uh, I've been um, an instigator, a uh, co-founder of a few institutions in the city that I'm very proud of and that continue today. Those involve uh, Rumble Productions, uh, the Push Festival, and the Post at 750, which is a co location, studio, and administrative space on the campus of the CPC buildings in uh, downtown Vancouver. And uh, most recently, I've been working freelance in a variety of different ways. Yeah. yeah. I should I should have said Dr. Norman Armour because, of course, you've right. gotten an honorary doctorate from uh, SFU. There's going to be a lot of uh, students uh, listening to this as well. So maybe I'll start with just a, a question around how you found yourself in the arts as a young person? Like, how did you first get involved? Were you singing and dancing when you were five? Or how did you fall into this as a lifelong passion? Well, my, fa- uh, my family background is not that uncommon in, in a sense that it's bicameral, if that's perhaps is the word between Scottish and uh, Irish, Irish orangemen, you know, very uh, Protestant Irish. On my father's side, on the Irish side, we were lawyers very prominent ones, including a Supreme Court judge. Uh, he was an engineer, worked at York University, oversaw the building of the Steeles campus for about 25 years, actually. But on my mother's side, uh, we're a ragtag team of, of academics and theater people. Yeah, theater people, uh, definitely theater people, including a kind of an amazing guy, James Maver, who was a professor of economics. He taught, um, I'm not, not going to remember the name, but the, the man who taught Marshall McLuhan, and his specialty was Russian history and Russian economic history, and he was a close pen pal of Leo Tolstoy, and he was a Fabian, he was George Bernard Shaw, he was a close friend of his, Mark Twain's. So he's a man of these letters in the world and such, but a real arts aficionado. And uh, taught at the University of Toronto, established, I think, a chair there in economics, but, you know, kind of didn't come from prestigious academic background in Scotland, but found him in himself in Canada. And one of his daughters uh, was a woman named Dora Maver Moore. And she's considered one of these sort of doyens or, you know, um, matrons of the Canadian theatre scene. 
a real, I sort of say cultural nationalist, if that makes, I don't know if that's a, a real phrase or not. And she had a lot to do with establishing Stratford, a lot to do with establishing a kind of a need for a Canadian voice, theatrical voice, that was still, for her generation, drawing on, on English mentors and things. But her son, Mavermoor, really forged forward, and I knew Maver uh, quite well, and he lived out here on the West Coast in the later part of his life. Maver was very close to my mother, and I liked Maver a lot. He was an incredible storyteller and told stories of the beginnings of CBC Radio and as a producer and telling cultural ministers to get the, you know, the F off and let them do their work and such. And they were real, they were really forging a really beginning of cultural institutions at the time from everything from the Charlottetown Festival to to St. Lawrence Market in, in Toronto, the, the venue there, and many, many institutions in the late 50s and into the mid-60s. And he was the first artist chair of the Canada Council. So, you know, that side of my family that kind of introduced me to it. My sister went into theatre. She was a tailor's apprentice at Shaw and worked also at Manitoba Theatre Centre. Her late husband also was... Uh, master carpenter and worked on a couple of Cronenberg films, including Dead Ringers and such. So that was my inspiration around the idea of theater. I knew I wanted to express myself or speak or something, you know, have some sense of a expressive outlet. And um, I don't think I had the patience for the other ones, like <laughs> literature and painting. And I didn't want to be alone. I, I think there was a part of me that really enjoyed the company of people and doing things together. If you don't, you know, don't ever think of theatre because it's nothing if not collaborative. Mm-hmm. Now, you were a student at SFU yeah. in, the, in the early 80s? Yeah, I yeah. think a pretty good period of time. Um, yeah, can you describe that that period? You guys were up on Burnaby Mountain, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah up in the shacks there. And yeah. the uh, it's funny because they were they weren't permanent buildings, but I remember going to visit my father on the Keel sta- uh, campus, and he was in buildings that weren't permanent either, and he'd been in them for twenty years. So they were there for a very long time, and they were where the center for the arts was. Grant Strata was the uh, chair of the department, an extraordinary artist in his own right as a performer and as a choreographer, but as an arts administrator, man, oh man, he was just sharp, 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 sharp. And it was a crazy period of time in a really good way. There was a really like energetic notion around the interdisciplinarity of what that meant, just in a purely social and practical level in terms of knowing people who were in the film department and knowing people in the visual art department and being inspired by a music teacher as much as you were inspired if your core uh, practice was theater is by your theater artist. There was a, a real energy there and a, and a kind of camaraderie between people. And a lot of people, I mean, FCFU, I think, prided itself, rightly so, that it wasn't about turning out people who waited for other people to create situations for you, that you were going to create your own situations and often you were going to create them with your cohort with your generation and people that you studied with. So, you know, I think we've heard lots of stories, read things about certain eras in New York or Paris or in Berlin. And this was one, uh, frankly, in Vancouver, you know, that, you know, um, oh, Judy Radul, Ken La, I mean, the list is long. It's just extraordinary list. And there was a point at which, you know, there was the almost the, what do you call the general strike? because of the cuts and the university had suffered a third of its cuts. 
and the Center for the Arts wasn't um, protected from that. And they were facing their own cuts. And there was this desire to kind of celebrate ourselves and who we are together and such. And we were doing end of term presentation. I think the first time we did it as a group, we just took an initiative and it was like seven hours long. You know, and there were teachers were coming in at like four in the afternoon going, what the hell's going on here? You guys aren't finished yet. And we were just sharing our work. And I, I just saw somebody I went to school with, Michael Doherty. He's based out of Toronto. He's a film producer. And he talked about that time with Al Rizzutis and the exercises that he gave him and others as students there. This kind of liberty, like, doesn't matter what you do. Just don't do something that's boring and don't mimic something else. Like, you know, encounter the world around you and respond to it in intriguing and interesting ways. And uh, uh, I also got, I think, another award from SFU Arts Award. And in both situations, I kind of said, look, my career, what it's turned out to be and where I've worked in the world and what I've believed in and stood for, it all goes to SFU and my mother. But uh, half, half of it's SFU, half of it's my mother. <laughs> and so I really, I cherish SFU. I, I honestly... I think it's an extraordinary institution with incredible history and an incredible future still to happen. Yeah. And and so after you um, graduated, um, what did you end up starting up and in, in working in the in the arts? I worked a little bit around Canada doing the weird, the weird shit, I used to sort of say, because, you know, in theater, you've got quite a big divide between, you know, the kind of straight ahead play play and or theater theater, as they like to call it, and say the regional network. And then you have degrees of of kind of adventuresome and then you get further and further into experimentation and then you're into okay we're not talking about theater here anymore we're talking about performance you know of some form or another and I was certainly prepared to do that I felt comfortable in it I couldn't dance numbers I couldn't like numbers were not my friend but I could respond to ideas and I could respond to things to music and stuff in I think intuitive ways that I was taught you know how to trust my instincts and how to be in the room and to improvise and and such and to create meaning, you know, to make sense of something, um, whether it be uh, a question of an, an, an art, art, um, you know, a melody, or whether it be a question of a of a story or a question of a, of movement or space you know, and, and site-specific work and such. So I did some things around Canada, around interdisciplinary art. But I also, through a connection from SFU, I did Shakespeare in the States. And I did it in Boise, Idaho. I did it at the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. And I had an incredible summertime there. Uh, came back and did another production in the fall, Macbeth. And then I, I met some people there who were establishing a Shakespeare company in Albany, New York, in a park by a, a designer the park was designed uh, quite a beautiful park designed by uh the same person who did um central park in new york and the actor shakespeare company and i worked uh, two summers there doing shakespeare i think i was basically on the budget as you know furniture or something like that <laughs> <laughs> now in, in terms of uh, i know that you worked throughout the states and in, in a bunch of um, cities as well and then you also set up and started organizations. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that, because actually a lot of people in town probably don't know about all this work that you did in the States as well. Well, yeah. I mean, very quickly, I worked in Atlanta, Georgia, probably two years out of five years, over the course of five years. 
I worked at Emory University, which is where Carter used to teach. A very prestigious university, really fine place, and a really strong theater program. And an interesting theater program in that it was a, a combination of professionals and non-professionals. And they produced a lot and, and developed plays and brought in you know, world-renowned playwrights uh, to do kind of sort of a retrospective or focus on their work. But it was this combination of professionals and non-professionals that was, to me, really, really dynamic. And so I, I taught there a bit and I performed there a bit. That was a big thing. I, I worked in Sacramento, California, which was really kind of amazing time. I still remember the Tex-Mex uh, restaurant that I would go at sort of happy hour and do a short meal but and read um, Michael Ondaatje. I was reading uh, Skin of the Lion at that time, and I would sort of read 20 or so pages uh, over dinner before going to perform a Tartuffe. You know, at the Sacramento Theater Company. That was a really fond memory. And uh, I sort of joked that I worked in a lot of the minor state capitals of... Columbus, Ohio? Uh, no, not Columbus, <laughs> oh, not but, Columbus. but Boise, Idaho, <laughs> yeah. and, and Sacramento, and uh, uh, Atlanta. Oh, Atlanta's not minor. It's uh, certainly, obviously, the, the southwest, uh, southeast. It's a ma- major, major hub. Um, and then your other question was around... Yeah, just uh, what um, brought you back to, to Vancouver in terms of starting new organizations, right? Like- yeah, it's funny, you know. I, uh, my, I think it still happens today and maybe happens quicker, but I can't imagine that anybody coming out of Simon Fraser University or Studio 58 or UBC, Capilano, Langara, Langara Studio 58, who doesn't immediately go, do I stay here? Do I go to Toronto? Do I go to Chicago, perhaps? Do I go to Berlin? I mean, if you're a visual artist, you know, do I go to Berlin? It's a big decision to sort of figure out, and harder now because it's it's not, the, it was expensive back there. Vancouver's always been not a particularly cheap place to live, but it's really expensive. I just can't imagine now coming out at 20 and, and 21 or 22 and trying to figure out how to do your rent and how to make money and, survive while you did your art form so it was a it was a big decision for me you know um it was funny I, the way i described it is is that a, there was a bunch of us for whatever reason who decided to stay and just slowly or maybe abruptly kind of went no, i'm gonna stick here i'm gonna stick it out here there's something interesting here um for me i liked having come from toronto which you know career is with a capital c i liked here that I don't know what the words are to say. It's not that aspirations were less or smaller, but maybe more modest. And it just brought you down to focus on relationships and people and how you could work together, how you could share resources, what you had more in common than what you had in competition with each other. And over time, I just, I thought, whatever, I'm going to stick here. I, I drove taxi for a lot of years. I drove taxi for 12 years for Blacktop. And so I had a source of income. They liked me a lot. (laughs) And so I got my cabs when I needed my cabs and could pay my rent in a couple of days and stuff like that. So that wasn't difficult. And you were making good money on taxis that time. This is, uh, you know, whatever, uh, late 80s. And, And then it became, okay, well, am I really a journeyman actor? I wouldn't describe myself, I think. I don't really have all the necessarily... Did you practice your lines in the cab with people? No, but I, I, I worked as an assistant director for Roy Soret a couple of times, and I used to see the show one night, and then I'd 
come back, take a break, uh, park my taxi, and I'd go into the bar at the fire hall and give notes to the actors on the previous night's performance (laughs) and then take off. Uh, So, yeah, I did work it in. (laughs) I worked my taxi in. Um, And I did a a piece, a beautiful piece with Harvey Miller, a choreographer, a dance score. Harvey was one half of dance score, and we did a piece called Stay Awake about taxi driving. He was a taxi driver in Winnipeg. He got held up with a shotgun. And I'd certainly had experiences when I drove. Uh, I drove a lot of night shifts and we did a piece together called Stay Awake and it went across the country actually, or went to Toronto and Ottawa. So yeah, it became a source material in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. So how did, uh, how did Rumble come to be? Well, Rumble was um, a kind of answer to the question of if I wasn't going to sit around and wait for somebody to give me a job. And, and I did have an agent, I had a film agent really beautiful guy, one of the founding kind of agents in this scene here, a man named Robert Carrier, beautiful man, who I still remember to this day. I, I felt really odd going, look, you know, Robert, he'd seen me in a very whacked out piece um, in Blood Alley, directed by Terry Snellgrove, actually. And it was an ensemble uh, piece and very crazy piece. And last thing I think a film agent would go, oh yeah, I want that guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna represent him. He's going somewhere. That's the next Brad Pitt. And I said, I said to Robert, I said, look, you know, you can drop me anytime. You know, I'm, I'm gonna be a nuisance to you because I'm gonna go off to Atlanta and I'm gonna do this and blah blah blah. And he just quietly said, don't worry, we'll just play it by ear. And he kept me for until he retired and sold his business. And uh, it's just a man of honor. And and he was smart. I mean, he's a very smart businessman. Um, but he gave me the room to kind of do other things and didn't pigeonhole me into, look, if you want a career in film and if you're serious about this, you're going to have to do this. And I, and I really adored him for that. So, But on the other side, I could audition for things, and I was doing that to a certain degree. I got a gig here and there with Touchstone and other things. But it just seemed like, no, I, I, I want to create things. I want to instigate things. So with a man from Toronto, this crazy idea, Chris Gerard Pinker, who I knew through my older brother and through high school, was a a theater creator, a close collaborator and friend of people like uh, a whole bunch of people, Guillermo Verdecchia and uh, Daniel Brooks, who recently passed away uh, from cancer. And for some reason, I said, Chris, how about we do something? And he wasn't going to move to Vancouver. He was going to stay in Toronto. I wasn't expecting that. And he said, sure, and it'll take five years. How do you feel about that? And I went, okay. I like that sober kind of reality that it's going to take that time. And so we started. We started Rumble. And it was called Rumble Productions at the time. And as we went along, we both shared an interest in interdisciplinarity and this idea of working with choreographers. He's done a lot of work with choreographers lot of collaboration dramaturgically but also you know co-creation and we both shared an interest in film and other things and the possibilities around that his mother is a she's still alive a well-known actress and did a lot of work in radio so he knew of radio and stuff and that was a medium that was of real interest to me or the idea of sound and and such and so we started uh, we started rumble yeah uh, and you were based in the Dominion building? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, ninth floor. I, I, I mean, it's just like Sam Spade written all over the place. I'm just a sucker for something like that. I love that building. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of nonprofits, uh, Da Vinci's Inquest, and like all yeah. that. They were all around there. Yeah, right? I used to stand, you know, when I used to smoke 
I would stand there with Haddock outside. He would have his big stogie and stuff like that. And we'd share a conversation and stuff. Yeah. And I think Shauna Sylvester was there with yeah. the impacts at that time. Yeah. A lot of really interesting people. And I think I, we moved in there just, Lainey Slater was there with marketing and Linda Gorey, who's just the backbone of so much in the city. You talk about a story that's not been told is the story of Linda Gorey and how she's woven through the success and, and resilience of organizations. Um, and I think when we moved in, it was just when that when the confection store downstairs was closing. So, but um, I love the Dominion building. For those of you listening out there, it's like way before the Nuba days. Way before. Well, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. There was, there was a Mexican restaurant down there too. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and well, interesting story. <laughs> interesting, I don't know if it's interesting, it's just a bit, bit embarrassing, but I was in the elevator at one point and this guy gets on and who I'm assuming is his wife. It's older man, and I'm looking at him, and I can't, I can't remember his name. And I, I said, I said to him, "Are you who I think you are?" And he, he looked at me, took a pause, and he said, "Yes," and knowing exactly that I couldn't remember his name, and I, and I was nice to meet you. I shook his hand. It was Ed Broadbent. <laughs> But I thought it was a fairly clever way to, yeah, yeah. to kind of nod wing. I can't remember your name. Yeah, yeah. And he was very gracious. Of it was the Save the World building for a long time till the rents went up. It kind yeah. of yeah. was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you did a bunch of productions with Rumble, but then where the idea of the Push Festival, you left Rumble and then started on, on, on Bush or it came out of Rumble. It, it was a co, uh, uh, I mean, like Rumble, I've never done anything that I haven't done it with somebody else, you know. And Rumble had an interest in things. Like a lot of the independent scene, understandably, was driven to do its own work. You created an institution, you could do your own work. Direct your own work or create your own work, act in your own work. And we were certainly interested in doing that. We were doing things of that kind with Rumble. But we were also interested in being something of a hothouse, a kind of place where a, a creative sort of home for other artists who didn't want to necessarily start institutions and didn't want to put together a society and a board and those things to be able to create work. And we thought, hey, we've got some degree of influence. We're part of a new generation and we were very much generation. And we're talking 1980. Uh, Rumble was founded in 1980. And it's still going today. It's got a great uh, leader in it, Jiv Parson, fantastic. And I think I've got his last name correct, but Jiv, he's a wonderful individual. And we were, we wanted it to be more than us. And we wanted it to be about the values that we stood for, but expressed in ways that we would never express them. And so we started residency programs and we started The Young and the Restless, which was a program around... Um, young and emerging artists and providing a platform, a presenting platform for them. We also did stuff with radio. We did, uh, one of the things that Rumble came out of was a thing, uh, well, one project called Company, which was, that's an interesting story because the company was a Beckett novella and we raised money for it through a program that no longer exists at the Canada Council. And I'm not going to remember right now, an amazing program for interdisciplinarity really and just great ideas. And we did that and the company came out of that because Serge Benetton, who was moving to Toronto to head up dance makers, in a lobby of the fire hall one night said, do you want my company? 
like it's all set up legally and everything. It was called Hummingbird or something. We said, sure. And so we changed it. And we had a whole ton of different names. And and in the end, we came up with Rumble, which was a combination of Rambler and Mumble. So anyways, Rumble. And Chris and I, it was at the at the cafeteria of uh, Blacktop Cabs that we came up with the name. Anyway, so from Rumble, this idea of providing a platform and presenting work, the natural extension was, what do we want to be fed by? Who in Toronto or in Halifax or in maybe ultimately Berlin? But who elsewhere in the country do we want to invite in to say, hey, show us what you're doing? Um, can we show you what we're doing? Maybe we've got some connections here. Vancouver's at that time, and maybe it does now, I, you know, I've lived a certain life and such, so I, I can't speak for, again, somebody coming out of, you know, or, or having been out of university for two or three years, what their experience of Vancouver is. But back then it was isolated. You just did, we weren't in the media. Forget it. Ontario, you know, I grew up in Ontario. I know how it thinks of itself as the center of the universe. And the Global Mail, last thing they, they were going to do was cover something in Vancouver and certainly anything on anything emerging or whatever. So we had to take it into our own hands to establish our own identity and our relationships with the rest of the country. And who shared that too was uh, Katrina Dunn with Touchstone Theatre. And we talked to each other about doing a production. It was a production, a, a revival of a Glenn Gould production, Necessary Angel, I think it was. Yeah, Necessary Angel. Pretty legendary production. Ridiculous manager at the time who just said, it just was stupid in negotiations. And we said, forget it. We dropped it. And then we kind of went, well, what do we do now? And I was possibly going to do something with a cult, but they weren't really connected or uh, interested, and then Touchstone might do something with it where they were resident, the cults, but the cults didn't because they were doing something now. Anyway, and we turned back to ourselves and said, you know, what do we what do we do here? And I had done some presentation previously, Jillian Kiley with a really beautiful Under Wraps, extraordinary production with like 20 people on stage, all underneath a white sheet and two people not, the storytelling told that way. And Katrina and I talked about a festival and talked about again, you know, what it would take to do it. And are you interested? Uh, because it's going to be a long haul. And we both seemed interested. And there was a festival in Calgary, One Yellow Rabbit's High Performance Legendary Festival. That certainly was an inspiration. But equally was a festival in Toronto called Six Stages. Six works, not all solo works, a couple were solo, but six works from around the world. And that was the festival. It wasn't 20 shows. And it was a fantastic festival. And it showed us the scale. Size is not everything. It's the quality and the depth of the thing that you present. That creates people's perception of scale and depth. And we basically went to them and said, could we get that one? Could we get that one? Can we get that one? And we presented Rebrissard with... Uh, Jimmy, we presented William Yang, who presented again photographer, storyteller, with a piece called uh, Shadows, beautiful artist, still a friend today. Um, and we presented One Yellow Rabbit with a piece called Dream Machine, which is about the dream machine. William Burroughs and the Canadian, his colleague, uh, poet, and the dream machine that they created. And um, I remember the way I describe it is I, we did Jimmy, it's just a remarkable piece of work. And we were like 
you know, if, if you're presenting theater or dance, let's say music too, a perfect size house, somebody asked me, what's a perfect size house in the independent scene? I said, well, if it seats 100, 110 is perfect. Just a sense of demand and craziness and will I get a seat? And it was crazy for Jimmy. Like the word spread within two days. And it was just ridiculous. We were at Studio 16 and we were selling out and more than that. And one night there was a talk back and we said, you know, stay around if you wish. Talk back. Usually you're lucky if you get a third of the audience to stay for a talk back. And it took her 20 minutes to get out of the makeup and microphone and everything. It was a real tour de force performance. And she came in, she sat down and not a single person in the room had left. And I went to Katrina. I just said, we knew it was needed. Now we know it's wanted. There were the same 110, 150 people there that were there at the beginning of the show. While at that point, it was like two hours previous. So we didn't call it a festival at first. I sort of refer to the F word because I knew we would have been shot down. Oh, that's not a festival. It's not big enough. Or, oh, really? You, you only got to work from Britain? Oh, forget it. Oh, oh you got to work from Toronto and Montreal? That's it? Where's, where's the work from New York? Like anything, people would go, I'll give it up. Nice try, but, you know, give it up. So we stayed away. We called it a series. And then eventually we called it a festival. And the name Push comes from Lainey Slater. She's the one who was responsible for that. Well, she had, you know, 40,000 possibilities and we had a bunch of names. And, and, and I remember asking her about the capital S. And I said, did you know that everybody in print would brand us essentially by capitalizing that S? And she just smiled. This is no meaning to it. There's no meaning to the word capital S. It's not like push so or something like there's nothing it's just the branding in print um and then um we just steadily grew and we grew and we grew through partnerships the real belief in partnerships the dance center i'm not going to get it right ubc one of the finest producers in the city ubc theater producers did really difficult work uh with us and we're amazing uh the chan center and uh, joyce hinton did a lot of things we co-commissioned and Kronos Quartet and Tanya Tagak in a work that eventually ended up in Carnegie Hall. Um, we partnered with, oh, we did a thing called La Marea down in Gastown. It was co-produced with Boca de Lupo, and it was a site-specific work from Buenos Aires. And we got together UBC, Langara, Studio 58, and SFU, and the three universities had never worked together at the same time. And they both put in, I think, 5,000 each, and they provided production or they provided actors or they provided technical. It was all different depending on what seemed like the right kind of contribution. And we closed off uh, off uh, Water Street and had six, 7,000 people come up over five to six days. Um, we did a whole series on the city around place, around uh, we did a blindfolded tour of the city, which was two hours long. And you got taken into somebody's house and you took into businesses. And for two and a half hours, you were guided by somebody and you were blindfolded to experience the city from uh, other senses than, than your eyes and sight. And um, we did really challenging work. I mean, interesting thing is um, one of the things I'm most proud of is I, I was in Edinburgh at one point and I was outside a venue and I'd just seen an extraordinary production or it was at halftime. 
of Mabu Mimes in Toronto where they had done the, I think it's the doll's house. It's the one the, where the w- woman is trying to leave this marriage. Anyway, the woman is played by a six foot two opera singer, actress, remarkable performer. And all the men are under five feet tall. And it's an incredible production in the second half. It just soars. It's just like, wow. Anyways, I'm talking to this old guy, this producer who's producing the show. And he says, so, so who are you? And I said, well, I went out and with the Push Festival in Vancouver. He says, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, well, you, I've heard you take good care of people. And I said, how do you hear that? I said, oh, word gets around. And I was so proud, you know, because the festival was not about when an artist leaves or a technician or a producer leaves a festival and leaves Vancouver, they don't think about me. They think about the technicians they dealt with. They think about the person who picked them up at the airport. They think about the person who provided the contact for the kinesiologist or the massage therapist who can help them deal with a performer's injury. They think about how they were cared for. And that's not me. It's the people doing all the other work. And our festival had a beautiful reputation for how it cared for people. And it was deeply important to me that people, we we did things called FETs. We were trying to solve, I love this idea, you have a problem and you cannot come up with the simplest solution, like the most crudest, you know, we'll take a little block of wood here and hammer that in and we'll nail some screws to that and put a little saw thing to it. And so we wanted to connect artists to this local scene, visiting artists. So we came up with this idea of FETs, and we would go to an artist. We went to Camille Gingra and uh, her partner, Conde, and said, hey, look, uh, this week of the festival, we have a group from St. Petersburg. We have a group from Berlin and somewhere else. can't remember the third. And we'll turn up at 9.30 to your house, and we'll lay out all this food, all this wine, booze, non-alcoholic beverages, And at whatever time you tell us, we'll come back and we'll swoop it up and you will not have done a single thing. You create the invite list. It's your invite list, your artistic community that you want to have come and share a kind of time with these groups visiting. We can come our staff, but we won't have a huge barrage of volunteers come. It's your party. And it was a way of trying to overcome to some degree the kind of gatekeeper and power that can really quickly creep in to an organization that has resources and supposedly is the one to make things happen, to give some degree of agency and ownership. Because frankly, too, and we're, we were very practical about it, if the festival wasn't felt to be owned by the local community, it would have died. Would have died long ago by bitterness, rightly so, by a sense of resentment. And where are we on the stage? And we really felt that push needed to be owned, needed to be felt and possessed by people locally. Secondly, um, there's a kind of famous line of, you know, at a festival, two patrons just come out of a show and they're in the lobby and one says to the other, man, that was shit. What are you going to see next? If people can stick with you, that they trust the choice or the reason you made the decisions for the work that you chose, they can live through work that is not of their taste at all. They can live through work that actually doesn't turn out to be great, but perhaps was a commission or, you know, was done for integral reasons and done with honesty. But if you're choosing things 
in cynical ways and presenting them as if, oh, don't worry, they'll be fine. And if they don't like it, it doesn't matter. They'll still come back. I think people will get on to you. And audience, we developed an audience that trusted us, that came to Black Armband from Australia, this extraordinary evening of Indigenous music, film, song, and 1,600 people turned up in a freezing rainstorm. We presented Godspeed Your Black Emperor and Dana Jingra and, uh, um, with um, Animals of Distinction. Anyway, um, 2,300 people. And we present, I mean, one of my favorite audiences once was looking at a show, Buckminster Fuller, which is uh, by Sam Green, who's going to be in the festival this year with 32 Sounds. And I was looking out at the audience and going, there's architects, there's social you know, a- activists, there's uh, people around food safety, there's creative uh, creatives, there's designers, there's people from so many different walks of life and, and, and professional practices because of this figure, Buckminster Fuller. But there's also Yolo Tango fans and there's Sam Green fans. He was, you know, Academy Award nominated for his film about the, about the, uh, uh, the weather underground. And I just thought, man, oh man, that's the audience, you know? It's not about if you're British, you like British food. It's like, you know, what are you drawn to? What are the ideas? What are the things that the work might be speaking to? And what kind of aspects of the world is it touching upon? And the more far-ranging that is, and the more nuanced and complex that is, the better. An audience is not a single person. And it's not a single thing or a psychological frame or a cultural interest or a, it's, it's a multi, you know, very, it's as complex as any of us are as individuals. You just multiply that by 1,100 people and you've got 1,100 people who are going, I'm there for this film about Buckminster Fuller by Sam Green with Yolo Tango, you know, and it's by the Push Festival, who I love. Yeah. Uh, and the Push Festival, obviously, it's become a thing in the in the city. It's really held very tightly. It's highly respected nationally and um, internationally. But you know, as people who you know found an organization, get it started, there's not necessarily a blueprint in terms of how to grow it, how to go through that whole process. And I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit of like your learnings in the process of. Uh, growing push into this this mature organization. Oh wow! Uh, Minna Schendlinger, who was my partner in crime on the administrative side, and put in up with me enough in the beginning as I was like terrified of what we were trying to do. She says, you know, live and learn. Mostly live, you know. Um, you make a lot of mistakes and you own them. You try and be clear-headed about it. Um, you try and be honest with people and with yourself and hopefully human beings, whether they be funders or donors or patrons, fellow colleagues, you know, will give you the space to kind of adapt and be in that place of, man, this was wrong or what we did was wrong. Um, and how can we do it differently or better? You know, I think most of the mistakes that I personally have made in my career have to do with not informing people, letting them know about things. The more you do, the more you include people in the information that they really deserve to know about, the better. And in a lot of cases has to do with risk, frankly, you know, Um, the risk that it takes to, to start an organization and to grow it at times. 
and the determination that it takes. It takes determination, I'll say that. It's a funny mix. I'm, I'm not a fan of bravado. It's just whatever. Um, I can appreciate it when it's done well and clever and, and such, but, but I am a huge fan of clarity. I'm a huge fan of determination, and I'm a huge fan of passion. I think without passion, forget it. Uh, there's just no way. Nothing's ever easy. And anybody who says something's a no-brainer is just, it's just just weaponizing a kind of situation that seems somewhat less risky than another situation. But nothing is without real challenge. Nothing is without collective effort. And I think the more that you value people properly for what they are and involve them for what they are, which is why you should be, as opposed to paying lip service to something, the more that I think you're going to build up a team of individuals. I mean, we were talking with Julie earlier. I mean, a remarkable individual. It was uh, That was a remarkable time then, the spirit of how people worked together and how they challenged each other and, and that we're in kind of debate and discussion. And I'd always walk across the room to Janelle. I would walk across Janelle to say, What's the ticket price on this thing? Like, what are we going to do here? In music, she was clairvoyant. I remember on a Monday, it was, we were presenting 13 Most Beautiful. And we were going into the Vogue, I, if not the first time, maybe the second time. But, you know, that's 1,100 seats. That's not a small venue in Vancouver. And it's not a, an easy thing. Uh, and we don't, frankly, we don't have 1,500 seats. We, go, we jump to 2,700 seats after that. So it's a sizable venue. And we'd sold 45 tickets for, uh, for 13 Most Beautiful. And I said, Janelle, what are we going to do here? Do we, can you help me with my obituary? I don't know what I said. <laughs> and she said, don't worry, we'll be fine. And I said, what do you mean? I said, just don't worry, we'll be fine. And by Saturday, I think it was Saturday. I like to think Friday, but I think it was Saturday. We'd sold it out. Half of it was walk-ups. And, you know, if you're not working with good people, then you're not working with good people. And you, I've heard that before, surround yourself with people smarter than you. It's, there's no question. It still means in the end you have to make, what are you responsible for? And you are responsible for making difficult decisions. And I, I made a difficult one one time about growth where I felt, oh, this was going to be too hard on the team. And I paid a price for it out in the sector is I canceled my participation or the push fest was participation in a presentation. And there's still half of me that goes, oh, Bonnie could have dealt with it and the marketing. And then the other half that goes, no, nah, screw that. You did it for the right reason. You were trying to kind of, you were caring for how much the load is. You know, you're putting on this individual, Bonnie's an extraordinary marketer and she's really beautiful. She works out at MOA now. Uh, head of communications out there. and. So in a way, I no, I don't regret it. I did it for the right reasons. Um, and I think, I think I'm not going to get into leadership speak. And there are people who are much more articulate around this stuff and studied about it. But I think that's part of it is is making hard decisions and people seeing you make hard decisions, because if you're not making them, between, like I I, I remember struggling with what is morality and what is ethics, and I looked up and found definitions that were satisfying to me for what I was trying to figure out. And it kind of talked about morality is between good and evil and ethics is between two goods. 
And if you're not willing to kind of stick your head into the fire of two goods, or it's not a fire, it's something else, then why be in that position? Because you have to, and you have to show people that you're willing to make those hard decisions. That also means that you actually are a good listener and that you hear people's concerns. You hear people's, uh, uh, because if you have to go a certain path where some individuals are not fully on board, they should have the right to know that you listened, you know, that they had their day in court. And I figure, you know, of 10 people, you have an idea and you say something, two people are going to disagree totally and will never care. Two people are going to disagree, but they understand the reasoning behind it and they respect it. And then the other six are going to agree and agree for the reasoning. Who are you talking to? The two who will never agree to you? Or are you talking to the two who disagree you could learn something from and the two who are on your side? You know, so growth, you can't just, this whole risk at first, I think the risk thing is so badly stated and, and articulated at times, it's kind of used in ways to sort of say, oh, you're risk adverse, or uh, come on, take the risk, go for the risk, you know, as if, if it's some kind of, again, some kind of form of bravado. And I'm not downplaying that there are definitely risks at play, but it's calculated, it's talked about and thought through. And, and the key is not to isolate yourself. And, and because, to be honest, also, everybody shares in when those failures don't happen. Oh, guys, okay, everybody, how do we do this differently the next time? Rather than, oh, sorry, guys, I was wrong to force everybody to do this extra thing. And we did big things and growth things. We believed in what we were doing and we were confident in what we were doing. I think if we really thought of what it was going to take to shut down Gastown, and what it took for Kenji Maeda to go to all of those businesses, I think there were 12 of them, and get them to agree to every night them having a performance in their space or, or outside their space on the street and everything, we would have given up long ago. So in discussion with a, a fairly significant project with a, an organization that I'm doing some curating with, and it's big, it's huge. Um, but the last thing I want is to be shut down because of the cost of it. It's like, that's just... Come on, let's first find out if there's a reason to do this. And if we think there's a reason, maybe somebody else does. And if they think there is, maybe somebody else does. And if we keep going at this, we're going to find enough people who think it is, we're going to get the resources actually to do this. That's not to be stupid about things, but it's just way too easy to say, no, nah, it's not possible. It's not possible. Give up now. You know? So it, it is a, um, a tricky sort of dance with that question of when you do let something go and when you persist. Because, again, I'll just say it, nothing happens easy. And you have to persist. You have to be a, you know, a kind person about it and be respectful and everything. But fight for what you're doing and with the value of what you're doing and, and the resources necessary for it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Norman, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about health stuff. Oh sure, but but uh, first uh, let's start with the heart attack. I mean, it was it was written about in the Globe and <laughs> Mail and everything. But what it, it happened at an intermission at the Push Festival. Yes, uh, yeah. do you mind sharing a little bit about it? Of course, my my colleague Michael Boucher was saved also my, yeah. saved your life. Yeah, <laughs> um, we were presenting Mary Margaret O'Hare the first time she had been presented in Vancouver, and it was intermission. It was the first night of a two night gig for her. 
and we were at Performance Works. And uh, Michael, who had come in early, as a good presenter would, he, to find a good seat, he said, oh, well, maybe we'll sit with you. And so Michael and his wife, Tish, who sat with me and uh, oh, some other people, Sherry Johnson and others. And uh, at intermission, no, no, I think that was pre-show. He got me a couple of crantinis. Um, but at intermission, I, that day I've been feeling odd. Uh, I've got a picture of myself with Rabbi Murray at the Grunt Gallery like four hours earlier. I looked like death warmed over. And, um, you know, I had jaw pain, which I didn't know jaw pain was a part of early signs of, yeah, that you're, you're looking at a, a, what they call, I guess, a metal, uh, uh, an incident. Uh, cardiac arrest and was full full cardiac arrest. I don't know what half is, but um, and I went down. I dropped to the ground suddenly. Michael, who I didn't know, had been a paramedic in Montreal in his twenties, and you know he's built. He's tough Irish guy, and stocky. And uh, he went down and for five and a half minutes uh, did uh, CPR. Uh, there isn't a, a jolt. Uh, one of the machines in the building. There, perhaps it is now. Maybe. Tish called uh, for the ambulance, stayed on the phone because it's a bit complicated, Grand Island, to find the, where the venue is. So she was guiding the ambulance. Five and a half minutes later, uh, there was a guy doing, you know, pumping me. And they brought me back, and I was completely unconscious, and put me in the ambulance. They had to stop in front of the arts club, and I'm not sure what the meaning of that is, because I stopped again. My heart stopped again. They had to give me more. I don't know. I don't know what that was. Uh, actually, good friends with Bill. I always have been good friends with Bill, Bill Millard. And uh, I got one stent put in. There's a, it's a term, uh, it's the strength of your heart. If your heart takes in 10 ounces of blood and pumps out six, it's normal. Mine was 3.5. Then they put the stent in and it eventually over a few weeks got to five. I had a, a recent uh check in around in and an echogram and my heart's actually completely repaired. And I saw my oncologist, a great guy, Dr. Graham Wong, legendary guy. But, you know, it was the second week of the festival and it's like the festival director is, sorry, who's, who's having a heart attack? It's Norman Armour. And um, there was, I guess, a lot of discussion on whether they would perform, continue to perform, which they chose to do, which was great. And the first song on the, set for the second half was her signature song from Miss America. Do you know, do you know it? No, I don't. Know. Oh, it's a beautiful album. Do you know the album? I, I know I know about her, but not her specifically. Well, the album's beautiful. It was like recorded over, I think, the course of like two years. Very, it's a beautiful, extraordinary. But her signature song is Body in Trouble. And that's what she sang, the first song off the top of the second half. <laughs> and um, I was stupidly determined to go back the following week, which Lorna was like, my partner, Lorna, Lorna Brown. And I just said, I'm sorry, Lorna, you come with me, you don't, but I'm not spending a year not having been able to. So, you know, I, I think I was home. That was a Saturday, a Friday night, I think. And I was home by Monday or something fairly, fairly uh, early. And I went back the next week. We had Taylor Mack from New York, beautiful cabaret drag artist, extraordinary artist. And he was doing an evening of various things. And he's known for playing a ukulele, but he hadn't played it at all that night. But he did the very last song. And I snuck in, in the darkness. And I was standing like 10 feet, like parallel to where I was a week ago on the floor, you know, 
about to die. And I would have died elsewhere. If, if I had fallen on the street, I would have been dead. There's no question. Michael definitely uh, saved my life. And I, and I think Sherry was also a part of it in a very spiritual way. Uh, I would have been dead otherwise. So theater might kill me, but it saved me. <laughs> yeah, so so afterwards, I guess you had to stop smoking and um, eat a lot of avocado toast. You know, I, this is perfect Scottish ret- retribution. I I had uh, stopped smoking the year before, so it was kind of like, <laughs> you're not getting away with this. Um, yeah, it changed, it changed me. Um, I think it changed a lot of people in terms of these shocks that you have about mortality i mean yep we're all gonna die at some point whether it's young or older or in kind ways or less less uh less pleasurable ways we're all gonna die and but we of course like to forget that and so you have these kind of moments where you're just whoa god okay so it's that you're that close to it really you're that vulnerable to it. I mean, I had somewhat genetically in my family situations. My father had died of a heart attack and his father had died of a heart attack. Um, the smoking and the stress. Those are sort of the three things that for me caused it together. Yeah. And, and of course, um, more recently you've been, uh, very public, you've been public about yeah. your, your recent, um, uh, cancer diagnosis. And mm. I'm wondering if, um, uh, you wanted to share a little bit about that. Yeah, I was, well, I was diagnosed on my birthday. <laughs> I learned my diagnosis on my birthday. What a, what a birthday. It's a gift that keeps on coming <laughs> or keeps on giving. Uh, February 19th, my diagnosed with lung cancer and diagnosed with stage four. And I don't know a lot about cancer. I'm still learning a lot. Um, and of course, stage four is like, oh God, I'm dead in four months. Well, stage four means it's jumped the fence. It's not in one place. You can't go carve it out. You can't zap it out. It's with you for good. Um, The question is whether it's treatable or not. And mine is treatable, thankfully. Um, And I've been, I tell you, the, you know, so it's it's in one lung. It jumped, where it went elsewhere was into a vertebrae in my third lumbar and caused, caused a hairline fracture which just, is, I mean, the cancer is fine. It's the treatments and the side effects and consequences that'll kill you. Ay, ay, ay. Just your body adjusting and readjusting and all these bad things that it does. And don't get me on steroids. And, uh, um, well, I spent 10 days in a psych ward because I was dealing with lack of sleep. And it's, I'm trying to look for the word. Um, I didn't send you a text, it's happening, no? Uh, I, I've got a few texts from you. <laughs> I, I visited you, so yeah, yes, yes, of course. Sorry, there's so much. I've some like it's, it was such a phase, that period of it's. Um, I'm trying to remember the manicness. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people with uh, who deal with schizophrenia or one version or another often encounter it because of lack of sleep, and it's essentially lack of sleep. With steroids, it just ramps it it just makes it like you're off the ground you know you're you're a foot off the ground um so i've gone through a lot of things from the pneumonia to two embolisms one in each lung to um severe pain like ridiculous i sort of say i have an understanding of in the world war one in the trenches of people dealing with lack of anesthesia and just wanting their leg to be sawed off 
And I had that from, from the vertebrae. That's thankfully gone. I have some other things, but I'm seeing somebody tonight, um, a physiotherapist for the first time. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. I'm amazed at the BC medical system. You know, I, walking into the cancer agency is just the first time. I had this experience that like, oh, everybody's walking as slow as me. And it was just suddenly whoosh. And suddenly I was in this space with all of the, this community of individuals who were either dealing with cancer themselves or, or their loved ones. Everybody, the technicians, the receptionists, the nurses, the, the nurse practitioners, the, the doctors, like there has not been one person that I've ever felt mistreated by. I don't know. I, like they can't all get together every morning and go, okay, how are we going to be today? But they do. Uh, somehow and there is just this vibe and this this care that is absolutely extraordinary that kind of um i don't know how it feeds me but it it certainly makes me feel so much less alone uh, with with something which is terrifying you know the response to when i was in the in the psych ward was i got assigned a psychiatrist an extraordinary psychiatric psychiatrist dr richford Carol Richford, I think is her full name. And she had this point, I like to tell the story. And this stuff I tell, I just figure, why keep secret around? I mean, I, it's not an ideology for me. And if it's not something you want to speak about your health, I completely appreciate. For me, I'm fine. And for me, it actually makes me feel, like I say, less alone. And my first session with her, with Lorna, Lorna and I, she said at one point, she looked at me and she said, if, if you think I have somebody outside the room ready to take you away, you're wrong. And I froze. And it was like the back of my brain was going, how the effing did you know that that's what's at the bottom of where my fear is? And I told her later, I said, you know, when you said that, uh, it was just a massive sort of click of trust. And she said, well, it was a risk for me to do that, but I was afraid you were going to walk up and walk out at that moment. And she's a remarkable individual, beautiful individual. And you know what? Um, steroids can do very strange things to you. They're amazing painkillers, but they're so dangerous. They're really like evil, evil things. To they, it's addictive and and misleading and everything. And uh, uh, for me, one of the problems was is it jacked me up. So I was like a hundred times what I was, or a thousand times. So if somebody said, "Sorry, Norman, what are you saying?" I just go. Yeah, pretty good biceps too. <laughs> and she, at times in the in that session, would go, would look at, would hear me. She'd ask a question like, "Do you have bipolar in your family?" Examples, and I would give ten minute portraits of my family members. And she would like turn to Lorna and go, "Is he always like this? And like like in normal life, is he like this?" And she'd go, "Yeah." And you go, "Okay." And she did about four or five times. And I just went, "You're so smart. Like you're so in the room here." And um, again, I just, I've been astounded by the sense of humor, the, the care, the attention, the charm of, of the system. It's overworked, overloaded um, the, in terms of HR and everything. It's that center, that place carries such a huge responsibility, the care, cancer agency. But yeah. 
Yeah, I know you've you've continued to work and you do um, uh, lots of consulting for organizations, as our friend Suresh Rao refers to you, the paramedic for the arts. <laughs> That's very kind. <laughs> you have to have a heart attack to get that name, <laughs> yes. right? And there's a lot of issues. You, you've spent so long advocating to um, arts funders, be it the BC Arts Council, the Canada Council, and others, uh, in terms of being a really loud, prominent, uh, sector-wide voice in terms of funding and other areas that need to happen to allow organizations and artists to thrive and all of that. And I'm wondering, you know, your thoughts on, you know, a lifetime of advocacy for this sector beyond the things that you were working on, uh, you're continuing to do this work now. Yeah, my work is less public now, you know, because I, my name for the first time in 30 years was after I left PUSH in 2000 and whatever. So five years ago, I, I went to work for the Australia Arts Council, helped them with strategy with North America and their Australian arts sector. So I've had my name attached to a, an institution that was public facing for 30 years. And now I've been working independently. I worked with the Indian Summer, with Suresh and others there and, and helped with the leadership transition, something I, I found extremely rewarding. And the thoughtfulness you were there on the well, board yeah, at the time. Full disclosure, I was on the board. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful leader. You're a remarkable leader. And, and so, and, and there's been huge generational change in the last few years and huge cultural change and much more to come. So I find myself in, in an odd situation. You know, I'm white, cis male, 64 years old. Um, I think I'd still have things to bring to the table and thinking about things and to talk things through. I think my values are solid. I don't, I'm not in the thick of some of the debates that are happening, uh, you know, in terms of people who are firmly entrenched in organizations that are very public, whether they be, you know, producing organizations or policy advocate or funding organizations and such. So I'm selective of where I think I can bring value and such. Um, I'm also at liberty now, you know, at 64, I paid off my mortgage last year. I didn't think I could ever spell the word, let alone pay it off. But 15 years later, I did. And um, I have a beautiful partner, Lorna, Lorna Brown. Who, <laughs> I wouldn't be alive, you know, now if it wasn't for her. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. So I, I feel, you know, I come from a place of feeling extremely fortunate. Uh, I suppose privileged in a lot of ways, but I also fought very hard to get where I got to in my career and consistently, I think, learned from my mistakes and collaborated and learned from others and was curious about that and and think as much about what I can give as what I can get out of anything. Um, in fact, don't want to be in any room that I'm not really honestly actually or meaningfully actually being able to contribute and stuff. So it's more selective. I'm, I'm doing some projects. I'm, I'm co-editing a book with Michael Bay Yamamoto of uh, Theatre Replacement uh, called Vancouver Theatrics, uh, 30 Years of Restless Experimentation. And it's about 30 years of Vancouver scene written by Vancouver artists that we're commissioning essays from. And because there's no recorded history, really, of the Vancouver independent scene. And if there is, it's reviews or profiles. It's done by journalists, but not by artists and artists who have been influenced by that work and by those conditions and by those particular productions and incidents and such. So that came out of COVID and we're now sort of moving into 
like confirmed writers and things like that. It's a really exciting project, scary one. Uh, but I think we're going to do a great job with it, I think. And the people are going to do a great job with it. We have a really remarkable collection of individuals working on it. Again, a collaborative project. And then I'm, I approached at some point Viff, Kyle Fossner, uh, who I'd met briefly, and I approached somehow and just sort of said, would you, you know, I'd seen they'd done live uh, film and something live element, mostly music, I think, but not always. And, and I, for some reason, I just thought, I've been a big fan of Viff for years. I, I joke it's been a childhood dream, which of course it can't be because I grew up in Toronto, but, <laughs> but it is. I love, I think it's an extraordinary institution and I always was admired the audience. I was like to everybody at Push, I went, that's our audience. That's what, who we want. That's the type of people we want. And uh, I said, would you be at all interested in somebody helping you with your live program? And by chance, the person who had internally who had been working on it with Kyle, Kyle off the sort of side of his desk, um, had left. And, and Kyle said, sure. So kind of helped to develop a, a definition of what a guest curator might be and what the scope of work is. And uh, we're some modest beginning this year, but a couple of really public facing things, 32 f sounds from uh, Sam Green. And then a work called Machine Folklore. It's two collectives from uh, Taipei who are, if I, I, in the past I would have said the next generation, but they are the generation, like they're in full momentum. Um, and so a contribution of artists who are also very deep into VR and other kinds of things. Um, but it's a film and, and music, a digital music thing. So doing that, but then also introducing an idea around a kind of program and we're not calling it a program yet because we don't deserve to call it that yet, but we're calling it the people, the individuals participating residents who are outside of the television, the film world, but who have an interest in the idea of image. Mm -hmm. And I know the festival and a lot of festivals are challenging themselves around this question of how can we expand our notions of film culture to include larger notions around image, VR and other things. And so... They're invited to participate in the festival and to access the industry stuff and and the things that are appropriate and AMP and Signals, which is the music and the VR, AR thing. And um, that'll be all announced in September. But uh, So I can say it now because this will come out later, but it's you know, Miwel Matreik, a remarkable animation artist who inserts herself live into her work. She's currently teaching at SFU, came out of CalArts in California. Chris Dirksen. Uh, extraordinary indigenous uh, cellist and composer. And uh, it's Sammy Chen, who I like to say is based in Vancouver and 10 other cities in the world. He's all over the place. He's crazy in all the good ways. And then a guy named Daniel Barrow, who does overhead projectors presentations with animation uh, that he creates and with acetates. And these overhead projectors are, if you remember from high school, those old ones. But he did a piece called 30, a piece called uh, Winnipeg Babysitter. And it's worth mentioning because it's going to come out on on, on, on Blu-ray. And Winnipeg Babysitters is a 90-minute survey of a period of time in the late 70s, early 80s in Winnipeg when the federal government was allowing airspace or the, the establishment of cable television on the condition that there would be community access given. And they did it, you know, as all these things for a short period of time and then relaxed it and nobody did it again anymore. So this is Winnipeg's version of community access. 
and it's whacked out. It's good. I grew up in Toronto, and the one in Toronto was Chuck, the security guard, who would supposedly he he started his work at twelve at night, and he'd come in and unbeknownst to anybody at the studio, he would turn on the television and start broadcasting. So Chuck, the security guard. Winnipeg this is all over the map. It's everywhere. And Daniel does this great. So he's going to, on a Thursday night and the second week with the industry people, uh, mostly I think a lot of that, and there's a good collection of it that's growing and growing. The AMP program is just like taking off. Uh, Signals is, is gathering more and more steam. And is going to sort of say, here's the beginning of radio. Like, here's the beginning of television. Here's the, begin- here's the beginning of cable television. And this, would, this is what it looked like. This is the wild, wild west. <laughs> and, of course, they all have an idea of, you know, Winnipeg with Guy Madden and maybe Neil Young or others and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Norman? I think I've probably babbled on enough. I said more than enough. I hope... I hope uh, this is in the vein or the the stream of what you you like to have. Yeah, well, great to speak with you, Norman. Oh. You you are the living legend in the in the arts, and oh, it's no. so uh, great to um, have you with us, sharing some of these stories, particularly for students who are going to be able to uh, listen to this as they come out of school and think about where they're going to be making their work and and uh, experimenting inside of festivals and other places. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. My pleasure. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our episode with Norman Armour. Head to the show notes to read up on some of the resources mentioned in this episode, or for a further dive into all the artists and organizations mentioned, check out the episode's audio transcript, which is available, as with all of our episodes, on our website. Don't forget to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcast listening app of choice. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Hold up.